A Bite of Stars, A Slug of Time and Thou. The thick furs thudded softly to the ground as Professor Millward jerked himself upright on the narrow bed. This time he was sure it had been no dream. The freezing air that rasped against his lungs still seemed to echo with the sound that had come crashing out of the night. He gathered the furs around his shoulders and listened intently. All was quiet again. From the narrow windows on the western walls, long shafts of moonlight played upon the endless rows of books as they played upon the dead city beneath. The world was utterly still. Even in the old days the city would have been silent on such a night, and it was doubly silent now. With weary resolution, Professor Millward shuffled out of bed and doled a few lumps of coke into the glowing brazier. Then he made his way slowly towards the nearest window, pausing now and then to rest his hand lovingly on the volumes he had guarded all these years. He shielded his eyes from the brilliant moonlight and peered out into the night. The sky was cloudless. The sound he had heard had not been thunder, whatever it might have been. It had come from the north, and even as he waited, it came again. Distance had softened it, distance in the bulk of the hills that lay beyond London. It did not race across the sky with the wantonness of thunder, but seemed to come from a single point far to the north. It was like no natural sound that he had ever heard, and for a moment he dared to hope again. Only man, he was sure, could have made such a sound. Perhaps the dream that had kept him here, among these treasures of civilization, for more than twenty years, would soon be a dream no longer. Men were returning to England blasting their way through the ice and snow with the weapons that science had given them before the coming of the dust. It was strange that they should come by land and from the north, but he thrust aside any thoughts that would quench the newly kindled flame of hope. Three hundred feet below, the broken sea of snow-covered roofs lay bathed in the bitter moonlight. Miles away, the tall stacks of Battersea Power Station glimmered like thin white ghosts against the night sky. Now that the dome of St. Paul's had collapsed beneath the weight of snow, they alone challenged his supremacy. Professor Millward walked slowly back along the bookshelves, thinking over the plan that had formed in his mind. Twenty years ago, he had watched the last helicopters climbing heavily out of Regent's Park, the rotors churning the ceaselessly falling snow. Even then, when the silence had closed around him, he could not bring himself to believe that the North had been abandoned forever. Yet already he had waited a whole generation among the books to which he had dedicated his life. In those early days, he had sometimes heard, over the radio, which was his only contact with the South, of the struggle to colonize the now temperate lands of the equator. He did not know the outcome of that far-off battle fought with desperate skill in the dying jungles and across deserts that had already felt the first touch of snow. Perhaps it had failed. The radio had been silent now for fifteen years or more. Yet if men and machines were indeed returning from the north of all directions, he might again be able to hear their voices as they spoke to one another and to the lands from which they had come. Professor Millward left the university building perhaps a dozen times a year, and then only through sheer necessity. 
Over the past two decades, he had collected everything he needed from the shops in the Bloomsbury area, for in the final exodus, vast supplies of stocks had been left behind through lack of transport. In many ways, indeed, his life could be called luxurious. No professor of English literature had ever been clothed in such garments as those he had taken from an Oxford Street furrier's. The sun was blazing from a cloudless sky as he shouldered his pack and unlocked the massive gates. Even ten years ago, packs of starving dogs had hunted in this area, and though he had seen none for years, he was still cautious and always carried a revolver when he went into the open. The sunlight was so brilliant that the reflected glare hurt his eyes, but it was almost wholly lacking in heat, although the belt of cosmic dust through which the solar system was now passing had made little difference to the sun's brightness, it had robbed it of all strength. No one knew whether the world would swim out into the warmth again in ten or a thousand years, and civilization had fled southward in search of lands where the word summer was not an empty mockery. The latest drifts had packed hard, and Professor Millward had little difficulty in making the journey to Tottenham Court Road, Sometimes it had taken him hours of floundering through the snow, and one year he had been sealed in his great concrete watchtower for nine months. He kept away from the houses with their dangerous burdens of snow and their Damoclean icicles, and went north until he came to the shop he was seeking. The words above the shattered windows were still bright. Jenkins and Sons, radio and electrical, television a specialty. Some snow had drifted through a broken section of roofing, but the little upstairs room had not altered since his last visit a dozen years ago. The all-wave radio still stood on the table, and empty tins scattered on the floor spoke mutely of the lonely hours he had spent here before all hope had died. He wondered if he must go through the same ordeal again. Professor Millward brushed the snow from the copy of the Amateur Radio Handbook for 1965, which had taught him what little he knew about wireless. The test meters and batteries were still lying in their half-remembered places, and to his relief, some of the batteries still held their charge. He searched through the stock until he had built up the necessary power supplies and checked the radio as well as he could. Then he was ready. It was a pity that he could never send the manufacturers the testimonials they deserved. The faint hiss from the speaker brought back memories of the BBC, of the nine o'clock news and symphony concerts of all the things he had taken for granted in a world that was gone like a dream. With scarcely controlled impatience, he ran across the wave bands, but everywhere there was nothing save that omnipresent hiss. That was disappointing, but no more. He remembered that the real test would come at night. In the meantime, he would forage among the surrounding shops for anything that might be useful. It was dusk when he returned to the little room. A hundred miles above his head, tenuous and invisible, the heavy side layer would be expanding outwards towards the stars as the sun went down. So it had done every evening for millions of years, and for half a century only, man had used it for his own purposes, to reflect around the world his messages of hate or peace, to echo with trivialities, or to sound with music once called immortal. Slowly, with infinite patience, Professor Millward began to traverse the short wave bands that a generation ago had been a babble of shouting voices and stabbing morse. Even as he listened, the faint hope that he had dared to cherish began to fade within him. The city itself was no more silent than the once crowded oceans of ether. Only the faint crackle of thunderstorms half the world away broke the intolerable stillness. 
Man had abandoned his latest conquest. Soon after midnight, the batteries faded out. Professor Millward did not have the heart to search for more, but curled up in his furs and fell into a troubled sleep. He'd got what consolation he could from the thought that if he had not proved his theory, he had not disproved it either. The heatless sunlight was flooding the lonely white road when he began the homeward journey. He was very tired, for he had slept little, and his sleep had been broken by the recurring fantasy of rescue. The silence was suddenly broken by the distant thunder that came rolling over the white roofs. It came, there could be no doubt now, from beyond the northern hills that had once been London's playground. From the buildings on either side, little avalanches of snow went swishing out into the wide street. Then the silence returned. Professor Millward stood motionless, weighing, considering, analyzing. The sound had been too long drawn out to be an ordinary explosion. He was dreaming again. It was nothing less than the distant thunder of an atomic bomb, burning and blasting away the snow a million tons at a time. His hopes revived, and the disappointments of the night began to fade. That momentary pause almost cost him his life. Out of a side street, something huge and white moved suddenly into his field of vision. For a moment, his mind refused to accept the reality of what he saw. Then the paralysis left him, and he fumbled desperately for his futile revolver. Padding towards him across the snow, swinging its head from side to side with a hypnotic, serpentine motion was a huge polar bear. He dropped his belongings and ran, floundering over the snow towards the nearest buildings. Providentially, the underground entrance was only 50 feet away. The steel grill was closed, but he remembered breaking the lock many years ago. The temptation to look back was almost intolerable, for he could hear nothing to tell how near his pursuer was. For one frightful moment, the iron lattice resisted his numbed fingers. Then it yielded reluctantly, and he forced his way through the narrow opening. Out of his childhood there came a sudden incongruous memory of an albino ferret he had once seen weaving its body ceaselessly across the wire netting of its cage. There was the same reptile grace in the monstrous shape, almost twice as high as a man, that reared itself in baffled fury against the grill. The metal bowed, but did not yield beneath the pressure. Then the bear dropped to the ground, grunted softly, and padded away. It slashed once or twice at the fallen haversack, scattering a few tins of food into the snow, and vanished as silently as it had come. A very shaken Professor Millward reached the university three hours later, after moving in short bounds from one refuge to the next. After all these years, he was no longer alone in the city. He wondered if there were other visitors, and that same night he knew the answer. Just before dawn, he heard quite distinctly the cry of a wolf from somewhere in the direction of Hyde Park. By the end of the week, he knew that the animals of the north were on the move. Once he saw a reindeer running southward, pursued by a pack of silent wolves, and sometimes in the night there were sounds of deadly conflict. He was amazed that so much life still existed in the white wilderness between London and the Pole. Now something was driving it southward, and the knowledge brought him a mounting excitement. He did not believe that these fierce survivors would flee from anything save man. The strain of waiting was beginning to affect Professor Millward's mind and for hours he would sit in the cold sunlight, his furs wrapped round him, dreaming of rescue and thinking of the way in which men might be returning to England. Perhaps an expedition had come from North America across the Atlantic ice. It might have been years upon its way, but why had it come so far north? 
His favorite theory was that the Atlantic ice packs were not safe enough for heavy traffic farther to the south. One thing, however, he could not explain to his satisfaction. There had been no air reconnaissance. It was hard to believe that the art of flight had been lost so soon. Sometimes he would walk along the ranks of books, whispering now and then to a well-loved volume. There were books here that he had not dared to open for years. They reminded him so poignantly of the past. But now, as the days grew longer and brighter, he would sometimes take down a volume of poetry and reread his old favorites. Then he would go to the tall windows and shout the magic words over the rooftops as if they would break the spell that had gripped the world. It was warmer now, as if the ghosts of lost summers had returned to haunt the land. For whole days the temperature rose above freezing, while in many places flowers were breaking through the snow. Whatever was approaching from the north was nearer, and several times a day that enigmatic roar would go thundering over the city, sending the snow sliding upon a thousand roofs. There were strange, grinding undertones that Professor Millward found baffling and even ominous. At times it was almost as if he were listening to the clash of mighty armies, and sometimes a mad but dreadful thought came into his mind and would not be dismissed. Often he would wake in the night and imagine he heard the sound of mountains moving to the sea. So the summer wore away, and as the sound of that distant battle drew steadily nearer, Professor Millward was the prey of ever more violent, alternating hopes and fears. Although he saw no more wolves or bears, they seemed to have fled southward. He did not risk leaving the safety of his fortress. Every morning he would climb to the highest window of the tower and search the northern horizon with field glasses, but all he ever saw was the stubborn retreat of the snows above Hampstead as they fought their bitter rear-guard action against the sun. His vigil ended with the last days of the brief summer. The grinding thunder in the night had been nearer than ever before, but there was still nothing to hint at its real distance from the city. Professor Millward felt no premonition as he climbed to the narrow window and raised his binoculars to the northern sky. As a watcher from the walls of some threatened fortress might have seen the first sunlight glinting on the spears of an advancing army, so in that moment Professor Millward knew the truth. The air was crystal clear, and the hills were sharp and brilliant against the cold blue of the sky. They had lost almost all their snow. Once he would have rejoiced, but it meant nothing now. Overnight, the enemy he had forgotten had conquered the last defenses and was preparing for the final onslaught. As he saw that deadly glitter along the crest of the doomed hills, Professor Millward understood at last the sound he had heard advancing for so many months. It was little wonder he had dreamed of mountains on the march, out of the north, their ancient home, returning in triumph to the lands they had once possessed. The glaciers had come again. Hello, that was The Forgotten Enemy, written in 1949 by Arthur C. Clarke. With me to discuss it in this, the last episode of Series 2, is my fellow host, Mark Sinker, and our special guest, Michael Williams. Before we get into the story, Mark, can you tell us just a little bit about Arthur C. Clarke? Um, yes, I think uh, he is, you could say he was the UK's answer to Asimov, in a way, that he's uh, a very well-beloved... Um, classic writer from what I've consistently been calling the Silver Age, even no one else agrees with me about that. 
He was born in 1917. He died in March of this year in his 90s. Uh, he lived in Sri Lanka since the early 60s. Now, uh, just before you go on, can, why do you say he's the UK's answer to Asimov? Because one of the things that he was, um, apart from his popularity and his fame, really, um, one of the things that he was uh, very successful at was as a scientific popularizer. I, th- I think he was nominated for a Nobel Prize to do with one of his suggestion inventions, which is uh, ge- satellites in geostationary orbit. That that was definitely something that he proposed that... That didn't exist before. That I, I think other people had discussed it. I don't think he actually invented the idea, but he made quite a, a big deal of the idea that we should, this would be, would revolutionise broadcasting technology, such as we're using here. Well, I don't think Resonance has its own satellite yet. Um, and uh, he was president, I think, of the British Interplanetary Society in the early 50s, which was which was uh, an organisation to promote the idea of the British space race, which was something that didn't get quite as far as it could have done. But, but one of the things that he definitely uh, had a very big part played a big role in was was the idea of satellites as enabling global broadcasting. And how does this tie him to Asimov? Well, Asimov was also one of his um, his other hat, apart from writing lots about robots and space, was as a popularizer of science. And uh, in both cases, neither of them were, strictly speaking, professional scientists, but both of them had worked in the territory. Asimov was doctor, um, Clark was uh, a uh, radar engineer, I think, in the RAF during the war. So that they had a very good uh, natural affinity with the sort of hard science of science fiction, which is not, in fact, as common as as, uh, you might think, and it's probably something we could talk a little bit more about later. Um, so I, I, I'm pleased that we're finishing with this story because I think it comes in full circle in a way, uh, in two uh, different ways. One is that I know this story from the um, Brian Aldiss uh, Penguin Science Fiction Collection. It's in the second volume. It's the closing story in the second one. And I've always associated those that set of three collections that Aldiss put together as the as the beginning of the British New Wave. I mean, n- not necessarily everyone would agree with me, but that's how I think of where the sensibility is, is condensed, that they were put out in the early 60s and so on. But this story is from 1949. But this so. story is from 1949. And the curious thing is that I had always, when I, was, when I just sort of remembered and thought about it, I always think it's a story by J.G. Ballard. I don't think of it as a story... What? But there's something to to me. It's a very. It's just a. It's a good old sort of fashioned uh, uh, adventure romp. You've got polar bears in in London. You've got. Uh, I mean, it's, and, and I think I think it is. It's it's cozy calamity. The the great British contribution to science fiction, <laughs> which Ballard comes at the end of because his calamities were simultaneously not so cosy and he didn't think that they were a bad thing. <laughs> if you see what I mean. But before him, there'd been John Wyndham who. Who in Day of the Triffids and various other um, calamities are visited on mankind, and people sort of get along in a nice suburban way. And in some ways, I think that this is a precursor of that. It's obviously it's just after the end of the Second World War, so 
the idea that awful things could happen to London was was a very present reality to people who'd actually been living in London. Um, and uh, I, I think there's lots of, yeah, there's lots of lovely touches. But the the other thing that why I'm pleased that we're finishing with this one is that it actually it deals with ice and snow and of course our first two stories in different ways um who goes there and the pale of air mm-hmm. ice and snow were pretty central to both of them so. now i want to ask both of you and maybe michael williams you can start and i'm going to put you on the spot a little bit at one point um at one point arthur c clark says that the northern hills of london were once london's playground now i'm not from london I've not been here for that long, so I don't know what he means by this. Do either of you? Well, he might mean Hampstead Heath, and it's some kind of weird, like, gay thing. But <laughs> I don't. I, I that's that's just a guess that popped into my head. Right Michael, now. do you have a take on that? I'm I'm a northerner. I don't know the the geography of London at all. Um, so they could be any hills to me. I don't know. Right. I'm afraid. No, it it is a bit of a strange thing because it's not as if there's a famous mountain range just to the <laughs> north that you can see from all parts of the city. It is odd. One one of the other uh, uh, snowy uh, science fiction things that this reminded me of is this movie that was on TV actually a couple of days ago called The Day After Tomorrow, which I don't know if you guys have seen, but it's this American Hollywood blockbuster movie from maybe five years ago with Dennis Quaid and uh, a young Jake Gyllenhaal and it's about this sudden ice age which descends upon the most of North America uh, just sort of within a day. It, it, it descends on, yeah, on North America. It's within 48 hours, yeah. hence the title. But, oh, yeah. right, day after tomorrow, right. <laughs> um, and, um, and there are other similarities as well. The, the, the protagonists shack up in a library where the parent, you know, I guess the world's or that part of the world's repository of human knowledge is uh, is safeguarded. Um, how? Yeah, Michael, and suddenly there's wolves in the city. And there's wolves in the city. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. So, but Michael, how how realistic is that scenario, and how realistic is the scenario in this particular story? Well. My memory of the day after tomorrow is that it was pretty roundly debunked at the time. Was it? As being essentially preposterous, the time scale. I think the idea is that the Earth's climate is an extremely unstable, fragile system, and a slight perturbation could lead to a runaway catastrophic effect. The the famous one is Snowball Earth, which is um, as the Earth uh, cools uh, cloud formation, clouds reflect more sunlight, the Earth cools further, and you get a runaway effect. And and the only thing that's saved us from that in the past is, is changes in atmospheric chemistry due to volcanic eruptions. Now, when, sorry, when you say snowball Earth, so are snowball, you talking about it? Is that a movie or is this? this is sorry, a- yeah, snowball Earth is a um, uh, a an episode of geological time that happened billions of years ago, uh, and it it happened over a time scale of millions of years we entered and exited this episode. So the idea that you could get some runaway snowball effect in a space of 48 hours is obviously done to make a movie. I mean, you, you're not going to have an interesting love story over uh, a, a quarter of a billion years or whatever Snowball Earth took. Um, this one, it, it, it's entirely plausible that the Earth could, could pass through a 
a cloud of dust, and we wouldn't necessarily know with a great deal of notice that it was about to happen. Now, that, that is what happens in the story. There's a cloud. He, it's not mentioned very much, but he does no, say it, that there's a cloud of interplanetary dust, a belt of dust or something. Yeah, it's a bit of a sort of, oh, I need an explanation here. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, and it's, it's half the red brain and half the poison belt. It's something in space that happened. The, so, whole, the whole thing is done in, in two sentences. That's right. The sun was so brilliant, uh, but it was almost... almost wholly lacking in heat. Now, I, I, I stumbled when I read that sentence. This is, I think what he's getting at there is the electromagnetic spectrum, which is visible light is the light we see. Infrared light is the light which keeps us warm. So when you, an old-fashioned light bulb, when you look at it, you see visible light. I mean, if, you, if you're silly enough to grab hold of it, you feel infrared radiation. It's very hot. So what he's saying there is the dust is absorbing the infrared radiation but letting through the visible light. So it looks the same to our eyes, but we notice a significant reduction in temperature. Could there, is there a type of dust that could do that? So at, at lunchtime today, I, I had, I, I, I'm a, an astronomer by trade, so I had, I had lunch, I had black hole lunch with my collaborators, just a, sh- a shout out to them. And I read them this sentence and asked them what they thought of it. And... I'm concerned that Arthur C. Clarke has got this complete... Well, I'm not concerned. It doesn't keep me awake at night. But I I think Arthur C. Clarke has got this completely backwards. Dust transmits infrared radiation and blocks optical radiation. So it seems like this is completely backwards. Actually backwards. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe there is a a species of dust that would do this. I don't know. But um, there's limited mileage in being too accurate. And I've got here um, Fred Hoyle's The Black Cloud, which is... A very similar scenario, the Earth pass, pass, passes through a, um, a cloud of dust. And Fred Hoyle uh, was um, head of astronomy at Cambridge. He was an astronomy professor. And his description of the dust is 100% accurate and incredibly tedious. Now, <laughs> now, now, now you say description of the dust. Um, so in, well, I don't want to ruin the it's story. Just a, it's sort of a hypothesized dust that might that might envelop the Earth or, or, or pass between us and the sun? Well, the Milky Way is full of dust. It, it, it's, it's, not, it's not like big hairballs of dust. It's, they're very, very um, dispersed clouds of dust. But obviously, if you, if you look along a line of sight through dust, you're looking over huge distances, and it all adds up. Um, so the idea is it doesn't take a very dense cloud of dust that you wouldn't necessarily know about to get between you and the sun to do this. And in Fred Hoyle's story... It's a turns out to be a malevolent, super intelligent cloud of dust, which is is not like an astronomer <laughs> at all. But the first half of the book, they don't realise they haven't communicated with this cloud of dust yet, and the book has footnotes and diagrams and worked equations, and it's terrible. It's a terrible, terrible <laughs> book, but it's one hundred percent accurate. <laughs> and this is not one hundred percent accurate. It's pretty much that sentence in particular is pretty much one hundred percent wrong. But it's a much better read for it. Yeah.
I think one of the things which is has always been potent about science fiction is that it does bring right up against each other two things which are in everyone's brain are in principle there but are actually quite unusual to both be present and one is the the practical detail of getting things right which is necessary to science just in in terms of its, um, you know, theoretical and the things it gets to do, and this uh, the speculative leap into possibility, where you really don't know whether what you're talking about could happen or couldn't happen. But I think even for a fiction writer, it's important to somebody who's not dealing with science fiction at all. It's important to have. I think sometimes writers call this the, the telling detail or some some very grounded bit of reality or information. Even in a courtroom drama, there's if you can if you can write something that has this this grounding in reality, it helps tell the story and it helps bring you in and it helps you. So in science fiction, it might 
simply be a scientific detail that helps ground you, even if it's but wrong. The, mm-hmm. the issue really is, that I think, the speed of the um, transmission of the sense that it is a grounding detail, which is simultaneously you know, grounding you in the logic of the story and being actually scientifically reliable. And, I mean, obviously, it's very, very hard... To, it's very easy to find any number of weird um, stupidities in any number of really great books because actually they're not manuals for um, you're not going to be using them as textbooks in in physics lessons or biology or exobiology or whatever mm-hmm. so it, they're full of all kinds of nonsense which you, you are meant to just sort of jump past but it is kind of fun to look at i mean like, while we're at it let's just let, let's keep looking at, at, at some of these possible flaws with this story if for, for instance what happened to the other people in this story i i this is one of the things i really like about it is oh, yeah? that this guy who is in fact an, an english professor so he's a sort of a boffin but he's not actually a scientist has decided to stay behind in london for no very clearly stated reason and is now it's 20 years later it doesn't say is he the only person to stay in the whole of the south of england it seems it seems he is but as far as he's aware there's nobody else there's nobody else he has a little radio which all of all of the uh um the way to use it he learned from the uh, amateur, ham- am- amateur Radio Handbook of 1965, which is also, I think, a really nice detail because that is way in the past for us. But in 1949, it was impossibly it was futuristic. Futuristic. Right? Yeah. Yeah. The, the story seems to be set round about 1985 because it says he, he'd been there for 20 years. Uh-huh. And if you assume that he bought a new manual, <laughs> amateur radio manual, as people were leaving... Then that's twenty years after nineteen sixty-five. Um, uh, but the, yes, there's a very, uh, and I mean another t- sort of strange aspect of it is ha- exactly how fast are these glaciers moving? Because the wolves and the polar bear arrive suddenly, and he's totally astonished and menaced by them. And then it says, by the end of the week, they'd moved south and the glaciers are like charging after them over the top of the hill. Well, maybe Michael can, 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 can speak to this a little bit. How, do, can you tell us a little bit about how fast I looked, glaciers I looked up glaciers in advance of this show. <laughs> I know. Gl- glacier. In my American, I uh, say glacier, but, you know, glacier. <laughs> so yeah. I looked up glaciers. Yeah. Um, and apparently a typical glacier speed is a foot a day. But the very fastest glacier on Earth right now is the Jakobshavn Glacier uh, in Greenland, which moves at 100 feet a day. Well, that's, so that's, that's a fair clip. Yeah. Um, the idea that it would move in sudden slips like an earthquake is, I suppose, plausible. Um, that Apparently this one is moving on a, cu- a cushion of water because of global warming. There's a, a subducted cushion of water, and it's just sliding over that at an alarming so that rate. would help, help speed it up there. That would, and apparently th- this glacier is, um, as it come, go, falls off the edge of Greenland into the sea, it, in, it on its own is responsible for four percent of the sea level rise that we see. It's just this glacier. Now, by so, the way, sorry, just for, to those of you listening, um, the rumbles that you hear in the background, if you do hear them, are not glaciers advancing <laughs> on us. That is the northern line, I think, going up to uh, London Bridge. Just, just to reassure you, this is not where the world's here. Um, so, so do you think within twenty years or so, the time frame of this this uh, this story, that glaciers could um, have come down from 
I don't know where they would be coming down well, from. Well, the, the hills, he claims, are north of London. Yeah. Right? That's where they're coming the, from. Yeah, yeah yes, it's, uh, it's not very clear what the mechanism of glaciers is. As I mean, the, the idea of the advance of the ice field is slightly different from the idea that everything gets colder be- and so glaciers would actually, as it were, start on your back door. They don't have to come all the way down from the Arctic, which is the impression that, that you get from his his way of saying it. That the that the Arctic, uh, whatever it's called, the ice cap has has reached London, is the way he seems to be saying. But in fact, presumably, if it gets really cold, it would the ice would spring up everywhere, so the glacier would start at your local mountain, the, the famous <laughs> range of mountains just north of London, which is used to be the playground. Well, there are, where, where, are the pen, <laughs> where, where, where are the Pennines? Where, where are those? That's not that they're far, like, is it? They're 150 odd miles away, just outside Sheffield. Well, so you know, that's two hours up the M1. Yeah, I could do it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the the other movie that this, I mean, I keep thinking of movies that this reminds me of, but it's that kind of story. I think mm. um, there's polar bears. There's action. He's he's sort of bursting through two barriers and things like that. The the other movie that that this reminded me of was I Am Legend, um, which has seen several movie incarnations and was written, I can't remember, uh, quite a long time ago. Um, but, 50s, uh, I think. Yeah, yes. yeah. And the most recent one is this Will Smith movie, which, yeah. which came out. And it, it's this very similar story, Last Man in a Giant Metropolis. Um, but um, it's possibly a more convincing explanation in I Am Legend for why no one else is there. They've all been turned into kind of raging zombies or, or, or whatever. Yes, that's yeah. always more convincing. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but this, this Ice Age has either, people have either fled or been killed by this Ice Age. And you're saying, Michael, that it, is it plausible that uh, dust could, uh, cosmic dust to, you know, to, to, could, could appear so suddenly as to make the temperature of the planet drop so that an Ice Age could sort of spring upon us? In a matter of weeks? Weeks, I think, no. The, the, the problem with any sort of abrupt change in the world's climate is we have this huge bath of heat, the oceans, which keep us warm. It's the same reason London is warm and Moscow isn't. And they're at the same altitude, latitude. Um, so this isn't going to happen in weeks. It probably isn't going to happen in 20 years. If, you suddenly, if the sun disappeared, the Earth would you know, persist at sort of, not room temperature, but it would it would take a while to get cold. In the story, though, it, and it is an ice age, but it really doesn't take a very significant fall in temperature to make, you know, civilization untenable. Um, however, this idea that he's the last man alive and there are people kicking around on the equator living quite merrily and just not, not contacting him is not so plausible. The, I, 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 I think that... Th- the I, the reason I kind of like it is because it's just so unstated. What yeah. and I like the idea that he's a he just goes past it. He's a he's a professor of literature who's suddenly had this fantastic opportunity to be by himself in the library <laughs> while, when all Finally the noisy some peace people and quiet. exactly all yeah. the noisy people have yeah. left for getting on whatever they're getting on with. And the hint is, I think that you know they've gone down to the equator, but there's obviously been a huge disruption in the just the basic resources of civilization. So actually, it's just turned into some hideous social cataclysm. And, and it may not be that everyone is dead, but nobody's tending the radios anymore because they've all killed each other off because they're trying to set something up which was workable. He's on his own. 
he doesn't have to worry about anyone else at all. So he actually gets to survive much, much longer. He just has all the canned goods of the whole of London to choose from. I just, just very quickly, Michael, can you tell us what the heavy side layer is? Well, yeah, this is, this is for me, was the grounding detail that suddenly made the story uh, clarify. The heavy side layer is a layer in the ionosphere, the upper layers of the atmosphere of ionized particles. It's about 100 kilometers up. Now, ionized particles, that means they're ch- they have an electric charge. They're charged. Your common or garden particle is neutral, and ionized particles have an electric charge. And the, the consequence of them having electric charges for radio waves is radio waves reflect off them if they're of a sufficiently long wavelength. So, and anyone, what, what does that mean? What, what is that? What's the consequences of that? So, ima- when you're imagine you're you're in a boat and you see another ship's mast coming up across the horizon. So there's a distance a ship can be too far away from you, and you can no longer see the mast. And it, and it's the same thing with radio waves. The radio antenna that broadcasts the radio signals. If you go so far away, the curvature of the Earth, the planet Earth, gets in the way of the signals. So. If you've ever been on holiday in northern France during a test match, which I have done, you'll know that you can pick up Radio 4 long wave bounced around the curvature of the Earth from the heaviside layer. So the heaviside layer is a layer of charged particles in the upper atmosphere, yep. that, and it's possible to bounce radio waves off of them. Long wave radio waves. Long yeah. wave radio waves. The longer the better. Uh-huh. Yeah. So FM radio, you can't get Radio 1 or Resonance FM in northern France, but you can get radio for long wave because they have long waves and they and they and they and then and they send them up to the heavy side layer where they reflect and then they reflect down into around the curvature of northern the France. That's right. Yeah. The, the weird thing about it was that when they were discovered, they were discovered by accident, weren't they? Nobody knew that it was going to bounce off. They didn't. The heavy side layer wasn't named when whoever it was, Marconi, broadcast across the Atlantic, and the, they picked up the signal because they by accident picked the right kind of wavelength so it did bounce so he, so his assistant on the other side who just picked, happened to have his radio on over there <laughs> picked, picked up the signal but if they'd chosen a shortwave signal it would have just gone straight out into space and they would have said this radio is obviously only any good if you're actually just in the room next door
Mark, what, can you talk a little bit about fashions in Calamity? Well, I think this this is one of the things that does intrigue me a bit about this, and it was it was really brought into focus when when I discovered this story it was from 1949, rather than I'd sort of imagined it was the very beginning of the 60s because I'd read it in a book which was collected then, and to me just by association it has that sensibility and I just started thinking about you know you were talking about the day after tomorrow as being a um, an environmental cataclysm then I don't know and, and in that movie it's very it's, it's very heavy almost heavy handedly laid on there's a very environmental aspect to yes, it yes. which in this story is completely lacking no, no, I no, mean it's not it's not this yeah. isn't a mad made man made cataclysm at all in the Arthur C. Clarke it's totally it's made by space space's fault not man's fault um, and that's one of the things that I think, the in a way, the the cycle does go from things which are our fault to things which are nature's fault, and the other kind of um, disasters are, you know, an asteroid is going to hit the Earth, obviously not our fault, plague, probably our fault somehow by you know not washing our hands properly or something, um, war, obviously the bomb is our fault. Aliens, their fault, and the, it, that's the kind of thing that it it interests me that it, it that this does seem to be there was a sudden rash of uh, asteroids are going to hit the Earth films, and I mean they usually the the spark of them is something which has been on on the sort of uh, excitable science pages of the New York Times or whatever in in recent months, but I think the tone of them. Is, does seem to be quite fashion-led. So the, there was several films about um, aliens arriving and being very hostile around the time of Independence Day, mm-hmm. arriving in huge, huge, big ships, which uh, Arthur C. Clarke actually is... Some, I mean, he wrote several novels which are along those lines, although he tended to be quite sunny about what... He thought aliens were kind of the grown-ups as opposed to just horrible whatever, which were going to step on Earth and then move on. Sort of like Ursula Le Guin with her race of uh, intergalactic the Hain- adults. The Hainish. Uh, yes, I think so. I, I'm not sure if that is fair to because he didn't have just one overarching story for several things. So I think it was several different kinds of aliens and I think in some of the stories they're not quite as cut and dried nice but, but they do seem to be more advanced than us. I, and one of the things I think about his he, he was known for and celebrated for Maintaining this throughout his his writing career, this sense of wonder, as people would talk, that you would, he, whatever story he was writing, there was something about it which which really struck you, some image. And uh, I think when he's, is there one from the story that that still well, stays I think, with you? I think the the sort of the idea of the ice and the sublime, just I think that it's quite an old trope, old literary trope. And in a way, in a lot of science fiction, space replaced. Ice and snow in in Frankenstein, for example, the Arctic is the most kind of amazingly far and hostile and unhuman uh, environment. Whereas, 150 years later, space is is that environment. And I think that Clark was very interested in the actual mechanics of getting through space, the the space program as it was undertaken, and satellites. And he wrote. You know, one of the little details in 2001 is is about what it's like for humans in actually in raw space. The problem of the not being air and the being air and 
and this being part of the story. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a very memorable, you know, one of the one of the astronauts dies for losing air and the other one has to pass through a, a raw space section and work out the mechanics of doing that. And I think he was very good at operating on this boundary between the sort of um, the boundless amazingness of stuff which is bigger than the little human race, but also our kind of practical abilities to engage with that. Michael, you recently attended a conference about the end of the world. Yeah, yeah. I, I went to a meeting called Global Catastrophic Risks in Oxford, where it, it was a multidisciplinary meeting. So we had nuclear proliferation policy wonks from Georgetown, and we had virologists and cosmologists and all sorts. And these people had been invited because... To talk about global catastrophic risks. I mean, there, there were representatives the insur- from the insurance industry there who were obviously sort of <laughs> cons- if there's an asteroid coming, they want to know about it. But uh, I think the, the general idea was to kick ideas around and see which ones we w- should worry about and could we do anything about them if we should be worrying about them. So they went, they went through a list of them and, and they, 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 there was nuclear terrorism and nuclear war were probably the ones people were most worried about and people most felt like they could do anything about if those were issues. So if you, so if you were going to go down to the, the, the bookies um, and you were going to place bets... Yeah. So at, right at the end of the conference, they passed out a form asking people to put percentages on these. Now, I tried to get hold of them today and find out what the results were. That. I'm afraid I failed, so I can only tell you what I put myself, which was <laughs> completely unqualified guesses. But I, I felt like people were putting numbers of the order 10%, say, on nuclear terrorism, maybe 10%, maybe a little bit less on nuclear war. Um, and, and this is a percentage that's measuring... Uh, in the next hundred years, say. in the next hundred years, the percentage chance that this that the that the this end of the world will come as a result <laughs> of this. Well, no, well, no, because the the way they did it, they said, so give us a percentage that a million people will die. Give us a percentage that a billion people will die. Give us a percentage that this is an existential threat and that's the end of civilization. And it's, it's obviously, very I say for, for for each of these categories of uh, yeah, yeah, of so. apocalypse. So there, there, there was a long there was, so the nuclear terrorism one. I, I, I felt was the the most plausible one, but not necessarily. I mean, obviously, if, if you're in the middle of nuclear terrorism, it's not a particularly pleasant place to be. But, but there are there are gradations of nuclear terrorism, though, aren't there? Well, there's like a dirty bomb so, which blows yeah, up like maybe bomb. a block or something. So yeah, that's ju- that's a conventional expo- explosive that used yeah. to, is used to disperse radioactive material, and that's. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily very nice, but it's it's not it's not going to kill anyone outside that block, mm-hmm. really. Um, but nuclear war is a, is a is potentially a massive threat, and it's a much bigger threat than it was in the '60s because in the '60s, for all the the laughing we did about mutually assured destruction, it demonstrably did work. And the reason I th- I was told it worked is because you had a symmetrical conflict. You had two just two powers, each with equal arsenals. Whereas now you've got whatever it is, 10 countries with nuclear powers, and there's huge differences in the, their strengths, which makes the whole situation very unstable. And the expert there said we're, we're closer than we have been for 20 years to nuclear war, which was not very nice. But in, in terms of the, the idea of civilization ending, a number that often gets quoted is a number from Martin Rees, who is astronomer royal, and he wrote a book... Uh, uh, a couple of years ago, in which the, the headline number he said he gave civilization a fifty percent chance of surviving the next hundred years, 
and partly that's done to sell books, but it's not crazy. It's not crazy. Um, and his 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 pet way of ending civilizations are all the man-made ones. So not 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 a a, not, ran, a random ice age. Not a random ice age. Not a cosmic threat like an asteroid or. Uh, something that's even more dangerous and even harder to... Well, you can't do anything about it, which is a supernova or a gamma-ray burst, which is a, a star blowing up, and that would just sterilise life instantly, essentially. So, But there's, there's no point in worrying about those because you can't do anything about them and you get no warning when they happen. Well, there is a 100% chance that we are out of time and uh, out of time for this series. So thank you very much, Michael Williams and Mark Sinker, Elisha um, Sessions. This is A Bite of Stars, A Slug of Time, and Down.